today? Yeah. yeah. Was it different? So yeah. different. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's good that it's different. Okay. So today we're going to start talking about Rosh Hashanah. Um, we're not going to cover every possible thing that one could cover about Rosh Hashanah. In the Talmud, um, the main theme, the main focus of our prayers on Rosh Hashanah, is that you have crowning Hashem King. And in Chassidus, this is almost the entirety of the discussion of Rosh Hashanah that focuses around that idea. The idea of the Rosh Hashanah being a day of judgment is barely touched on, not it's ignored completely. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the idea of crowning Hashem King. Now, I asked you to think a little bit about what a king might symbolize, right? Did anyone think about it? I'm not going to ask you, but I'm happy that you found out. What I want to do is make sure that this class is not inspiring. I want to make sure that this class, especially for today, is much more conceptual. Okay. So we're not going to start with a king. We're going to start with um, analyzing certain basic aspects of reality. And eventually from there we're trying to understand what a king is, what's the significance of the symbolism of a king. Okay. The basic dynamic that exists between us and God is that there's God and that there's us. There's two of us, right? Okay, and the interaction dynamic between two beings, we're gonna call that a relationship. So God has a relationship with us. Okay, simple, no, not so complicated. A relationship can exist in many levels, it can have many qualities, it's multi-dimensional. What is it, and, and, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this, what I mean by a dimension. A dimension is something that can vary, and if two things can vary independently, then those are two different dimensions of the thing. So something could be tall, yes? It could be short. So the height is one dimension. Now, could something be narrower without changing its height? Wider without changing its height? So the width is a separate dimension than the height. Make sense? Okay, something could last for a short period of time, could last for a long period of time. That doesn't change, that doesn't necessarily depend on the physical shape of it, right? So the duration it exists is a separate dimension, right? Something could be boring or more interesting, right? So how interesting it is could be understood as another dimension. See what I mean? Every characteristic that can vary independently of another is a separate dimension of the thing. Okay? So relationships are multidimensional. Okay, so it will just break up folks in a relationship between any two beings, so say you and someone else. If you add relationships that involve multiple beings, then it gets complicated. Right, there's me and my wife, my wife and my son, my son and me. Me and my wife is a unit to my son, my wife, right? It gets complicated. Okay. That's why family therapy is interesting. Um, <laughs> and if you have two children, that's like... Yeah. Um, but let's just focus on a simpler two, two beings. So... One dimension of the relationship is 
um, how deep it is or how shallow it is, right? In other words, the, the, there's a, there's every relationship, it means a certain amount of bond, a certain amount of connection between the two people, right? Is that a stronger bond or a weaker bond, right? That's what I mean, shallow or deeper, right? So if you just think of a bunch of the relationship with person A, person B, person C, you could say, well, this relationship is more than that because this relationship, this person, um, the connection is a deeper, it's stronger, and this one is more shallow, more superficial. That makes sense? Okay. Every relationship also has a different dimension, um, which is, we're gonna call it positive and negative. The positive and negative dimension. I'll explain to you what I mean. Let's imagine there's somebody that you really hate. Let's imagine you're a perfect stranger. Who do you have a stronger relationship with? person you hate. It's a person you love deeply and a person who's a perfect stranger. Who do you have a strong relationship? Love deeply. Love deeply. But now, I wouldn't say that the relationship with the person I love deeply and the person I hate is the same, right? It varies along a different dimension. One, my relationship is negatively oriented. In other words, positively oriented, right? One, and by negatively oriented, the, the bond is how important it is for me to stay away from them or to get them away from me or to hurt them or whatever case it may be. Some kind of a negative dynamic. Whereas with the love, it's the opposite. It's how much to be together. Right, so you see how the, the, those are two different dimensions of relationship? Yeah? Okay. Now, I want to introduce a third element, a third dimension to a relationship. Okay? Which is how much autonomy is in this relationship. How much independence is in this relationship. Okay? So... And what I mean by this is as follows. Let's take the example of where you love somebody, okay? The more you love somebody, so the, so the relationship is a loving relationship, and we're gonna deepen that sense of goodness. You love is very intense. The more you love them, the more comfortable you are with their independence, the more comfortable you are with the fact they have their own mind, the more comfortable you are with the fact that they um, live their own life on their own terms, or the less comfortable you are with them. Again, by love, I don't mean a general positive thing, I mean the desire to be close to them. The more intense the love, the more you have respect for the person's autonomy, or the less? Mm -hmm. What? The more, it would be nice if that were true. Does love correlate with respect? No, because here's the thing, I love somebody, and I think something is very important and they disagree with me. How does that make me feel? Like I'm closer to them now because they disagree with me or I'm further from them? Well, like the conversation around that disagreement can, like, it brings you closer, no? It could, but, we, but the, thing is, the thing is, in real life, our relationships are, our relationships are usually multiple, multiple relationships kind of interacting with each other. So I wanna isolate just the, the relationship that has the element of just the love element. Now, what ends up happening is because we are complex beings, we often relate on multiple levels. Okay, but if you if 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 you love somebody very intensely and you really want to be together with them, you want the more there is things that differentiate you, the more that there's things that. Um, put you on opposite sides of things, the harder that's going to be. That's often actually why people are very intolerant of their loved ones making different life choices than them. 
it's much easier. So it's much easier for the religious parent to accept that their neighbor's child is not religious than their own child is not religious, or vice versa, they're not religious parents to accept that their ch- neighbor's child is religious, but my child's becoming religious is a problem. Um, spouses, small disagreements between spouses, differences of opinion, difference of outlook can be very, very painful and uncomfortable. Now, again, if you add other elements, because we're human beings, we're complex, then you can deal with that and you can create something much more complex and much more beautiful out of that. That's why I'm going to overly, I want to overly simplify it. So a relationship with just only love is going to, as it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, you run into something that almost um, becomes, you lose a sense of where one person ends and the other person begins. There starts to be identification with each other. And that creates a lack of tolerance for things like autonomy and independence. This is actually a serious problem in many relationships. Um, Now, What kind of relationship, the deeper it gets, the more there is a sense of autonomy and respect, what kind of uh, and, and, and acknowledgement of the other person's separateness and independence. Like what kind of relationship is that? It's not the desire to be close to somebody. It's not hatred. What kind of relationship has that dynamic? That the deeper that bond is, the more intensely you feel it, the stronger you have a sense that they are them and I am me, and they need to be responsible for their choices and I'll be responsible for my choices. What kind of relationship has that dynamic? I mean, ask you a question, have you encountered such a relationship like that? Where the stronger you feel about this person, the more you feel like they need to do their thing and I need to do my thing. No, I'm a parent and that's not the way it is. Parents have to work really hard using their rational mind to realize that their children need that. But it's not a dynamic of actual feeling. What? No, I know people. I want, I want, yeah. It's interesting, right? In other words, I can understand that the stronger I feel, the more I want to hurt somebody, that, that we've experienced. I can understand the more stronger I feel, the more I want to be with some of the point of even complete identification. I can understand the need to respect somebody else. But that's not what I'm talking about. I don't think the rational mind that something it's important to do so. The sense that the stronger my bond, the more I sense that they're independent. The more I sense, there's more I sense that they're independent for me, the stronger my bond with them. That's a very different kind of relationship. A relationship, it, it's not positive in the sense I really want to be with them. It's not negative in the sense it's, it's, it's operating in a totally different arena in that respect. And it's not, and most of the relationships, the, the, the stronger we feel, the less we see that person is independent, the less we feel that we're independent, the more we feel bound up. Even when the person, like you really, really hate the person, like people upset, I mean, there's the whole genre of vengeance, right? One person obsesses over taking vengeance of the other person their whole life. So it's a kind of negative identification with the person. Here, it's a very strong bond and they're independent. Like, what is that? Have I sufficiently described something that is unusual? That's not like in, in, intuitive that you... Okay. There is a problem with God, a very serious problem with God. And the problem with God is A, God is totally unlike anything else. That's problem number one. Problem number two. 
in some absolute sense, there is nothing else other than God. And why are these two things a problem? Well, can, can you have a relationship with something that is totally unlike you? And I mean totally, not different in some interesting way, but totally unlike you. What? No, but opposites are not unlike. Opposites are operating the same thing. For instance, I'm more analytical and my wife's more practical. And so like that works nicely. They're complementary, right? Okay. Like in theory, she's right. Okay, but, but, but that's, opposites work in the same thing. They're up and down or both directions in the same axis, right? So, you know, uh, a, a rational and emotional are two different ways of, 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 of the psyche processing reality, right? Something totally, it, just, it makes no sense. You, you, you relate to things because you're in the same, the relatable. Okay? And the other thing is in order to relate to someone, there has to be some sense that there's a me and there's the other. So relationship with God doesn't actually make a lot of sense. It really doesn't. Now, we ignore this very often, but it really, it really, really doesn't. God looking at us would A, say, what do I have in common with them? And he wouldn't say because he's nothing in common so he doesn't speak, but we're being anthropomorphic for a moment. And B, he wouldn't even acknowledge us as something, as some other entity because as far as he's concerned, he's the only thing that exists. And conversely, if we were taking God seriously, we would have the sense that what, how could we possibly be the other side of relationship with God? He isn't, he and I, I don't, don't exist in the same sense. We don't operate in the same sphere. There's nothing to, there's, there's no place of bond. There's no place of connection. Okay. This is, this is a problem that, that, often just gets overlooked. And the reason it gets overlooked is because we start thinking of God as like us with some significant differences. Like he's kind, but, but unlimitedly kind. And, or, he's, or he's fair, but infinitely fair, or whatever. We, but we, we tend to think of him in human-like terms, and that avoids this problem. But that's just not true. Okay? Or we tend to think of like God exists and I exist as if our existence and God's existence are somehow equivalent. Whereas it's not, also not true. So a relationship with God would require the ability to have, develop a very strong bond that is not weakened by, but strengthened by a sense of how other and how different the two sides are. In other words, you would, in order to have a relationship with God, there would, would need to be that somehow God is somehow even though God is so unrelatable, that somehow makes me feel more connected to him. Or even though I am so insignificant or nothing to God, somehow God is able to, that it, without denying that God could somehow find a connection or a bond to me. It would be a very, it's not like a normal relationship the way we think of friends, family, spouses, parents, children, cousins. It's just not like that. Okay. Now, Normally in Judaism, we ignore this thing. But Rosh Hashanah is the time where we don't ignore this thing. Okay. So we have, we have relationships where, again, summarize what we want. You have an aspect of relationship where it's how strong the bond is or how weak the bond is. Okay. Then there's what we're familiar with, which is, is it a positive bond, right? A bond of wanting to be together and getting along, or is it a negative bond, a bond of hatred, resentment, disgust, that, that kind of thing. 
And then I brought up a third possibility. Could there be a bond of separateness, a bond of sensing how important it is that the other person is unlike you, is independent from you, is autonomous from you? And that seems a little bit weird. But that's the kind of thing you would need to have a relationship with God. You would need a kind of a model of a relationship where the deeper our sense of how God is not like me and the deeper the sense of God's sense that I am not like him doesn't weaken the connection between us. It actually strengthens. strengthens it. Because if you only have a model of connection that's based on something that, that, that is relatable, that means one of us has to pretend to be what we're not. Either we have to pretend that God is more like a person or if you pretend that we're more like... Like God. Right. Okay. Does that conceptual problem make sense to everybody? Yes. Now. Wait, following these three rules, how is that us like, acknowledging how different we are that will make a stronger relationship? We would need a, some kind of model of relationship that would do that. Not based on how we've bonded or positive. No, so we would need, in other words, like this. You have a bond, let's see, you have a bond that's stronger and weaker. That's all relationships can be measured in that. Then you have the thing that we're usually familiar with is, is, is that the, the bond also is a positive or negative thing, which is positive bonds means I feel like I really want to be close to the person and negative is things I want to be with. So love is a positive bond, hate, disgust, these are negative bonds, right? Now, when you, and the thing is as the, but either of those bonds, as those get stronger and stronger and stronger, we identify more and more with the other, the other and other become more subsumed than they to themselves. So in the case of love, it's the sense that you obsess over the other person, you want to be the other person, you can't see how the other person could possibly reject you or make different choices than you or not want what you want, and that becomes very difficult. Again, once you apply rationality, we can, we can work with that and we can have a, a deeper, more complex relationship. I'm talking just the core element there. And then with like a hatred or disgust, it can be like, you know, like, you know, person becomes obsessed with taking vengeance, for example. But, oh, I brought up possibility that, that a, a bond which doesn't have a positive element of wanting to be close, it doesn't have a negative element of wanting to be distant. It has a, a, a kind of a, this, the bond gets stronger in proportion to how much of there's an acceptance of the independence and true distinction between both parties. That the more I have a sense that you are you, you are not an adjunct to me, and I am me, I'm not part of you, the stronger we feel connected to each other. That's an interesting kind of a bond, but that's the model of a bond you need to have if you have a relationship between a person and God, because a person and God are really not relatable. From God's point of view, he is the only thing that is significant and the only thing that is real, and from our point of view, we seem pretty real, we seem pretty significant. So like, we, we don't seem to live in the same kind of sense of reality, the same space, that we don't operate in the same way. So either we're supposed to like, pretend that we're not human beings, or we're supposed to, God's supposed to pretend that he's not a God. Or you need some way that we can embrace both things and feel strongly connected. Okay. This is abstract, but I think it's, if you understand this as a problem, then the symbolism of a king will actually make a lot more sense. Good? Okay. So. A king 
is a kind of a relationship that we have a very hard time understanding for cultural reasons. And I think it's important to mention that before we go forward. Why do we have a hard time understanding King for cultural reasons? Right. Well, it's not just that it doesn't exist. We've, we have, as a culture, invested a lot of energy in getting rid of the concept and developing a culture which is antithetical to the concept. And so I think in order to start, I'm going to you know, set it, everything we learned, just keep that in the back of your mind, and we're just gonna talk about the concept of the thing that we've gotten rid of, so we can appreciate how strange it is as a concept, okay? There is a country, okay? This country, the, the one, the leader of this country has died. And so now, the leader of this country is a 16-month-old baby. What qualifies this 16-month-old baby to be the ruler of this country? Well, lineage is not... Lineage is... is, is right, okay. Right, so lineage is, does, is not a full answer because that's like when you, like you have the train and you ask like, what's moving this car? You say, well, well the car in front of it, the car right here. Right, you're just passing it along. What you're saying is lineage, it's something he received from his father. Okay, because most of these times we're passionate now, but okay. So, but then you still have it. So, but what is it that he received from his father? Is it his wisdom that he received from his father? I mean, wisdom can be to some degree hereditary. Is it his strength? Is it his, what is it? What did he receive heretically, or not heretically, and what did he see receive from his ancestors? What did he see in his heritage that makes him deserving of being the king? Kingship. Kingship. That's kind of circular, right? <laughs> this sounds weird, right? Isn't it like the fact that like he has the blood of his father, like that's what qualifies him. So then why is his father's blood, you're right, but what does his father's blood have so significant? It's so special? royal blood. It's royal blood. Like that's what that, this is the, It's royal blood. Do you understand? He's royal blood. He's not regular blood. He's royal blood. Like, well, so does it make him smarter? No. That also won't disqualify his siblings. What? That also wouldn't disqualify, it was just about blood. See, see, see European history. <laughs> the point is well taken, hence all of the wars in European history. And why all of the, all, they're all related to each other, by the way. By the way, when he gets married, who does he have to marry? Someone from royal blood. Royal blood. So what is this royal blood thing? <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident, that not all men are created equal. And some are endowed with a sense of superiority that is God-given that cannot be measured in human terms. That sounds something that like resonates with you? No, right? <laughs> it's a weird idea. A, but that's the idea. The idea is, for some profoundly existential reason, this person is, in, a, in, in, in an essential sense, not your equal. And even though they're an infant, and even though they'll grow up and they may be as smart as you, and they may need your advice on how to run the country, they're not your equal. Is that the kind of culture that we have? There was a king of England. Um, there was a thing called the English Revolution, and the king of England was put on trial. And you know what his defense was? 
Something along those lines. He was much better. It was a much. It was, a better, it was, a, he, it was something to the effect of his defense was: you cannot try. I am not subject to the law. I am the law. The law. What I want. That's the law. Like I can't. But it, it's like he's like, he, and he really believes like it's not possible for me to violate the law because if I wish it, that's the law. So whatever I do is by default the law. Like it makes no sense to put me on trial. They killed him anyway, but whatever. <laughs> Did you know that the Queen of England legally cannot commit a crime? In England, anyway. Because? Yeah. She's the reigning monarch, right? When someone is arrested for violating the law, they're arrested in whose name? By whose authority are they arrested? The Queen's, the queen's authority. authority. It doesn't make sense to arrest the Queen, now does it? But we bury it. We don't really think about it, right, people? Anyone from the UK probably doesn't like to think about that idea too much. <laughs> no, but so this idea that, that, what do you mean? There's, we're not equal. There's somebody who's, not because of a specific characteristic or specific ability, but existentially, we are not equals. Right? There's somehow, they're exalted. And the idea is that when you sense that, you sense that, like, they're on one level, we're on another level, and like our relationship should be dictated by recognizing that each person should be living and operating in their proper place. And as you embrace your proper place, you feel a stronger bond. So the king feels a stronger sense of care and, wait for it, compassion for his subjects. And these subjects feel a great sense, strong sense of loyalty and fealty towards their monarch. Okay? And the sense is that at no point do they think they're going to be friends. At no point do they think they're going to get along with each other. At no point do they think they're going to like each other. What do they think? That embracing my place in the hierarchy of reality, by definition means embracing the other one's place in the, in the hierarchy. If I, if I recognize that I am not royal, I equally have to recognize that this person is royal. And so that creates a certain sense of devotion and loyalty. And if they recognize that they are royal, and they re- they, it requires them to also recognize that I'm not royal, and that means that they have a sense of responsibility, of care, and compassion. But this is all premised on the idea that, in essence, does everyone have an equal place in society? No. No. Okay. And we live in a culture that for the past hundred or hundreds of years, depending where you are in the world, has actively tried to propagate the idea that people are fundamentally... Equal. So you see why I have a problem with the king? So we immediately turn kingship into ideas of power, control, which I'm not saying those don't exist, but that's not the idea. There was um, the Tsar of Russia. You heard of the Tsar of Russia? Yes. Tsars, the Tsars of Russia were not known to be exceptionally nice to the Jews, right? Um, when the Tsar was deposed and killed, so one of the great Hasidic mentors cried. Someone asked him, why are you crying? It's not exactly like he was a good person. <laughs> he says, but now no one will understand what God is, means that God is king. They'll have, they, once that idea of a kingship as part of our culture, as part of our society, gets removed, it's going to be very hard. 150 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 200 years depending on where you were in the world, if you want to talk about God being king, you didn't have to have a class on it. Why? Because they knew what a king was. Now, did they think God was like the king that they had? Do they think that, you know, the, I mean, so we'll use another example. We, there's other analogies that we use sometimes for God. Do we use the analogy of God as being a father figure? 
Do you use the analogy of God being a teacher? Do you use the analogy of God being a spouse? Yes? Now, I had teachers. Are they God-like and perfect in all ways? But I still know what I mean when I say that God is a teacher, right? Do, but, you know, we speak about God being a spouse, God being a parent. Like, we, know, we, know how to, we know how to abstract the ideal of what we mean by that and apply it to God, right? But with kingship, it's very difficult. Why? It's not that we don't have an ideal king. We just, we live in a culture which rejects kingship itself. Right? And maybe that's a good thing. I, like, I'm not advocating that we should all go back to like, you know, monarchies or things like that. But when it comes to God, here's a very interesting question. Is it true that God and us are fundamentally equal? God exists absolutely. We exist conditionally. God, in sense, since the only thing that is real, we're only real because he makes it us that way, right? God doesn't derive his value from other things. We do derive our value from other things. It's just, we're not equal. So if the relationship is going to be in any way authentic, that there's going to be a strong sense of bond, whether it's from God to us or us to God, and it's going to acknowledge the reality of what we are and what God is, the best model in human relationships would be the model of a king. Does that mean every aspect of human kingship is really going to be a perfect way of understanding God? No. For instance, there's a thing that human beings have which corrupts all relationships, which is human beings um, are I'll use the word selfish. And by selfish, what I mean is that they care about themselves at the expense of others. We need things. We want to get what we need. And to some degree or another, we are willing to hurt other people to get what we need. That's a, that's a characteristic that we have. And so therefore, any relationship can, be, can have a selfish quality to it. Does that make sense? For instance, somebody wants to be president of the United States because they, want, they, they think they can help the country and do good and blah, 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 blah. I think all of us understand some element of that is they just, they, they, the, 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 the sense of power or the popularity, whatever it is, right, does something for them. And if they need to hurt some people along the way to get there, like, that's probably going to happen and they're okay with that, right? And that even takes place in relationships that are, we, we tend to idolize, like parents and children. Parents sometimes um, have unfulfilled dreams and they try to meet them vicariously through their children and disregard whether it's really in their child's best interest. Right? So that selfish thing affects a lot of relationships. Obviously, if you're talking about a monarch and the monarch has absolute authority, you could definitely see how that can be a corrupting thing. Is that an appropriate thing to then like, project onto God? Does God have um, needs that he can only meet by like, abusing others? No. So there's a lot about human kings that's not going to transfer over, but that's dynamic that the stronger the sense of bond correlates with the stronger sense of having a difference, of not being the same, of not belonging together. The more, how do you know that this person really has a strong sense of loyalty to the king? That they feel completely like the king and them should never meet. Not because they're afraid the king's gonna hurt them. Like the peasant in the village, right? If he, if he were to feel comfortable just hanging out with the king, then it would mean he didn't have a strong sense that, that this person is the king. And if the king didn't have a strong sense that this person is under my protection, this person, that this person is someone who, 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 who 
depends on me and relies on me, but rather going to treat them as, as a comrade as equal. They've also lost that sense. So it's a, it's a very much different dynamic. You can find things in modern society that have similar elements to it, but I don't want to get go off on it. I think um, it's just helpful to realize that the reason we're using this analogy of a king is because for the vast majority of human history, it really has been a good analogy. We unfortunately live in, at least regarding learning Hasidus, maybe not in other respects, quite happy that we don't have kings in many respects. Um, so. There's not a relationship. It it's is, not a strong relationship. It is a strong relationship. Yeah. Would you would you say a strong relationship is something that you're willing to die for the relationship? Would that be a strong relationship? Yeah. Okay. The relationship of the kings and subjects are such that are the subjects willing to die for the king? Is the king willing to die rather than abandon his role as king and being there for the subjects? So that sounds like if we're going to measure that, I mean. It's no less of a deep bond. What it lacks is intimacy. What it lacks is closeness. What it lacks is, right? It doesn't have that kind of emotional visceralness of love or hate. You're right. It's not, that's why it's a it, The dimension of depth, it can have very much the extreme. But the dimension of emotional positivity, negativity, I really, you're right. It doesn't have that. It, 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 it's something else. Okay. Um, and the thing is that if we're going to, if, if we're if, if we're going to be in love with God, if we're going to hate God, if we're going to fear any of these types of feelings, they're kind of denying the 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 fundamental truth that us and God are just in no way equivalent. Whereas a model of a king does give a sense that we're in no way equivalent, and yet we're deeply bound to each other, we're deeply devoted to each other, not despite. How are not equivalent, how we're not on the same level, but actually because, right? The, 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 the greater the majesty of the king, the more devoted the subject. The greater the majesty of the king, the more he is compassionate to a subject. The reason why they use the idea of the king for compassion, one of the things that limits our compassion is that compassion is draining. Yes? Compassion for someone that drains you? Okay. So if you have too much compassion, what will eventually happen? You run out of energy, you get caught up in their problems. Okay, now, I realize that people are people and they're complicated, but just think about just in the ideal. The king is supposedly on this higher level, right? Is it not equal, right? So the idea being is that the king having, because the king is having compassion for, for, for something that's beneath him, the king has limitless resources. The king has... The king's compassion is, is one of, of grace. It's coming, it's coming freely from without draining him because he's not investing himself into it because it's something I have to accomplish, I have to do. He's, what the person is receiving from the king is from the king's level so, so small and so insignificant, he could just keep giving compassion more and more and more and more. Now, in reality, the actual human being does get emotionally drained if he's expressing his compassion with financial resources, he has limited finances. But at least the ideal seems to follow that model. In fact, there's an interesting little um, thing. In Saudi Arabia, they still have a king. You know that? Like a real, real king. And in Saudi Arabia, they have a practice which was quite common, which is what's called the audience day. An audience day is a day where you can have an audience with the king or the king's representative. What do you call a king's representative? 
over a region, a governor, right? We now call them so governor means something else. But originally the governor was what? Because the king can't be everywhere, right? So the king appoints someone and he is, so to speak, the king in the king's stead, right? That's the governor of a region, right? That's the idea. Um, and so Saudi Arabia, the, the king is appointed, I don't know, probably all sorts of cousins and nephews and brothers, how yeah, it works over there, governs different regions. So every governor is an audience day. And what an audience day is, is that if you have a problem, it doesn't matter what your problem is, your neighbor stole your sheep. I don't care, it doesn't matter, right? You, 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 you have a hard time carrying your groceries. It does not matter what your problem is. One day a week, you can line up, and what happens? You get an audience with the governor, you tell the governor your problem, and what does the governor do? The governor decides if he wants to look into it. And here's the trick. Okay, this is part of the art of being a king or a king's representative. If you only deal with the big problems, then what do people start to get a sense of? You're not a king. That's right. Like the, there's an art to this whole kingship thing, which is that the king equally... Now, again, physically is the king limited, so can he involve, get involved in everybody's problems? No, but the king has to give the sense that he's involved in everybody's problems equally. So he takes some of the big problems, but also some of the petty little ones. Now, that's very different. Like when we think about like a, a president or a prime minister, we think like everybody has their level. Like, you know, the president deals with the big issues, the person, you know, at the, you know, the, 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 you know, the post office deals with these little issues. But the idea is that because the, the king is supposed to be above all issues, above everybody equally, so for the king it should be, it's no big deal to get involved in the big issue and no small issue is beneath him because he's not stuck in the same dynamic as everybody else. And so part of maintaining that majesty, that cultural phenomenon of the king is that the king or the king's representative takes seriously somebody's dispute over where the milk went when the milkman delivered it as they take dispute about where to build a dam. Showing that what? I am above all of your issues, so I can be compassionate, I can be focused, I can care about all of them, the big, the small, equally. And if the king doesn't do that, or the king doesn't do that, what is the, the people start to have the sense that he's not really above us, he's not really operating from a whole different space. It's kind of, there's, you know, with a human being, there's almost a bit of a charade there, right? It's almost like you're, you know, pretending something. But with God, when we pray, do you only pray, are you only supposed to pray about big issues or about small issues? Everything. Why? Because God wants to hear everything. Because God is a king. What? Right, that's, that God is a king. And a king, he is not, right? In, in a company, you have like the CEO, you've got the, the middle manager, but a, a king is not, the, in a sense, a king is not the top of the hierarchy. A king stands above everyone else and says, all of you are on one level and I'm the level above that. In fact, in a real monarchy, the king can take the peasant and make them the prime minister, and the prime minister and make them a peasant, right? So that dynamic, that the king, the king is someone who's, who's really on a different level. And in Europe, that became known as the idea of the royal blood. Okay. In Judaism, what makes you a king? Judaism has an idea of, make, of a king. What makes you a king in Judaism, halakhically? What? The oil. The oil. The oil, the anointing oil. You have to be appointed by God, right? The prophet anoints you, and or you inherit it from your, your, your father, and then that makes you king. Interestingly, though, do the people have to ac accept the king as king? Yeah. Yes. So it's a combination of God sanctioning the king and the people accepting the king. When those two things come together, then the person's the king. 
So what does it mean to make God king? It means that now we have this model of relationship, okay? That God is a, on a totally different level than us. We're on a totally different level than him. He sees that he's on one level and we're on another. We see we're on one level and he's on another. And that recognition makes us feel a stronger devotion towards each other. And the devotion is asymmetrical. What do I mean? It means the way we're devoted to him is not the way he's devoted to us. A very simple way to see this is can, can one king have many subjects? Yes. But can one subject have many kings? No. no. The fealty and loyalty of the subject to the king is a different kind of thing, right, than the devotion and the compassion of the king to the subject. Not that they're any less, not that one is more and one is less. In terms of the depth, there may be symmetrical, there may be equal, but in terms of what it's like, it's very different. One is deference, one is gracious, right? The subject defers to the will of the king. The king graciously gives of himself to what the, uh, and shares with the subject. So there's, there's, there's a difference there. But it all stems from recognizing we are just two fundamentally different levels and that's not a reason to be disconnected from each other. That's actually a reason to be more devoted to each other. Okay? That's the analogy of a king. Okay? And again, if we'd all been living in monarchies, would have had to give this past 40-minute introduction about what a king is and why we use this as an analogy? Probably not, because people have an intuitive sense of you know, kingship. Okay. Now, a lot of things I think it's important to realize that a lot of times our not understanding of something in Torah can be not because we don't understand something in Torah, we just don't understand something in the world, right? And this is not a new problem. I mean, the Talmudic sages discuss that sometimes they're reading things from the biblical period or from the Mishnahic period and they don't understand them because life is different then. So they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, what did they mean when they said this? What were they trying to say? Okay. So in every era we have to do that. Okay, so why do we have to make God king? It just seems by default God is king. That's the modality of the relationship, right? So, if we think about relationships, relationships have, um, a, a way to think about relationships, relationships are like clothing. Clothing you can take on and you can take off. You can put on, put off. So, for instance, right now, the mode of our relationship is teacher and student, Right? So at some point, I adopt the teacher mode, and you adopt the student mode, and then we use that as the conduit, as the channel to interact. Make sense? But am I essentially a teacher? Like, is that my very being? No. And is your very being being a student? No. Something you adopt, you can take on, you take it off. And even things which, even things which seemingly are fixed, like say, being a parent or being the child of somebody, if you think about it, well, in some like deep existential sense, it might be true, but as an actual relationship, it's not true. For instance, um, most of the time when you're living your life, are you living your life through the lens of I am my mother's daughter? Is that the lens to which you relate to everything? No, but sometimes it is, right? Okay. Um, for instance, let's say you meet up with your mother's best friend for lunch, right? Then now all of a sudden that that roles becomes more part of your psyche, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but that's entirely different than you're just doing your own thing and somewhere in the back of your unconscious mind, you know that you have a mother and she's important to you. So even roles which are really, even roles and relationships which are really absolutely fixed, they still have this quality of something we adopt and something we, okay. So now, the idea that 
I'm going to do this entirely from God's point of view. The idea that God is our king is something that God needs to adopt. Why? Because if you think about it, even a king is a little bit misleading because a king still implies that there's on some level two things, right? There's the king and there's the subject, right? And the subject is at least significant enough to relate to. So God, if God doesn't adopt that way of relating to us, God could adopt the way that, that he's just all there is and that's the end of it and, 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 and be completely, so completely transcendent that our reality and our existence has no meaning to him. And so God has to relate to us in a sense of I am the creator, they're the creation. I am the all-knowing God. They are the mortal beings that need my God. The God has to be kind of an acknowledgement of God's support to, to, to relate to that fact that he's on one level or on a different level as two levels that stand in relation to each other, a higher level and a lower level, an above and a below. And if God doesn't choose to relate to it that way, then there's no relationship. So in Kabbalah, it says everything God does in his, relation, in his interaction with the world, from creating it to governing it, everything, the giving of the Torah, everything comes through this mode of God being king. The minute God is no longer king, the whole idea of God interacting with us disappears from God's point of view. It becomes nonsensical. Okay. So if you were to look at a Kabbalah chart, where would God's kingship be on a Kabbalah chart? It's at the bottom. Why is it the bottom? Because it's the point of contact between God and interacting with others. Okay? If God is not going to adopt the role of king, then as far as he's concerned, there's no, there, there isn't a he's above and we're below. He is one level, we're a different level. There's just him. Okay? Now, just like in a human relationship, there's the question of are you doing what that role requires of you and are you actually invested in that? So I could come to class and I could just like speak with no actual care, no actual concern, no actual investment. And then what would the quality of the class be like? Right. Or I could care very deeply about teaching and come to class. And maybe the class isn't good because I'm just not good at it, but at least to whatever degree that I am good at it, right, it would come through because I'm invested in it. I care about it. I have a desire for it, right? So the question is, not does God stop being a king. If God were to stop being a king in kind of an absolute sense, like poof, the world would cease to exist. The question is a much more subtle and important one. Does God care about being a king? Does God see this mode of I'm the God and there are the creations and I like, does, does God see that as significant or not? If he sees that as significant, then he has embraced being a king. If he sees that as like, whatever, so it's not, I, I, I can do it, but I don't really care about it, then he's not really embraced being a king. The idea- Even if he does embrace it, like, is a reality created where two things exist? Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Because you can do something without fully being invested in it. Now, why would do something if you're not fully invested in it is an interesting question, which I'm not going to answer right now. So, how, we just said that it's not possible to create that unless he's fully invested in the content. No, he, not unless he's king. But then the question is, is he invested in being king or is he just doing it? So I'll give you, or no, give, I'll give you, like, we're back to the teaching. I could come up and just start talking. 
right? But the class, quality of the class is not going to be so good, right? I can, you know, do the bare minimum of parenting my children, and, you know, their life is not going to be good, right? You can do things in a way that you're not invested in them and still get them done because for whatever reason you have some ulterior motive, I think it needs to get done. That's how most people clean, right? And so the cleaning is like good enough, right? So that when we speak about making God king, it's not yes king or no king. It's is he deeply invested in this or is not? I'll give you like a... This is an unpleasant example, but it's nonetheless true. There are plenty of people that are married without actually being married in the psychological sense. Meaning, they're married, and they've grown apart, and so, like, the, you know, the day-to-day habitual emotions of a married couple still exist, but do they have the investment in, I am so-and-so's husband, or I am so-and-so's wife, and that's important and meaningful to me and dictates how I live my life? No. But yet, they're still going through the basic motions, maybe just because, you know, the inertia there and, and the, the, the upheaval of getting divorced isn't worth it and so just keep on. We can have that. I'm not saying that that's what's happening with God but the idea of God being king is much more than just is he doing the things based on this model of kingship. The question is, is he really invested in that? Is he care about that? Is he see that as personal significance to him? Because if it's not, then it's not really a relationship anymore. It's just the shell of a relationship. But also in the model of a king and a subject, they're invested in the role, but they're not, there's no intimacy in it, they're not. There's no intimacy, but again, what did I say? Are they willing to die for that relationship? That's pretty invested. But there's no real relationship in... It's a different model. So like of being married without... No, it's, married. A different, it's a different model of relationship. It's a different model of relationship. Now, an idea that is discussed... Um, and you alluded to this before when you said uh, how like, and you talk problems and you talk about you deep in the relationship. An idea that is discussed is that while God being king is the, the channel through which all things work, the idea is that God should be king and then that's it. The idea is to mix other things into that. So we speak in Kabbalah about unifying his kingship with his love, unifying his kingship with his wisdom, so that God in his role of being a king can also add elements that are intimate. But that's all step two. Okay. In other words, um, like for instance, a teacher can, is about providing wisdom, right? But a teacher could also be kind and a teacher could also be funny, right? You can add elements of one thing into another. Okay. But, but in Rosh Hashanah, it's really, it's not about intimacy. And Rosh Hashanah is not an intimate day. It's a very deep day. It's a very profound day because it's about this question. Does God really care about being king or is he doing it without being invested in it? That's the question. And if he's doing it without being invested in it, the technicalities will still exist. There will still be a world, the sun will still rise, the sun will still set, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the notion that we can have any kind of relationship to him, that what we do will matter to him, what he does should matter to us, that goes away. In other words, um, I'm sure you're all very happy that there are people who collect the trash and doesn't pile up in the streets, yes? Do you have a relationship with them? No, why? Because all that matters to you is the effect of what they've done, right? How they relate is not meaningful to you. So if God is doing this play acting in king, right? He's like, I'm the God and they're the creations and I'll make them and I'll do them. So we benefit from the, from the fact that the world exists and the world functions and things happen and, and it's very nice. I mean, we have our lives. 
but but in that sense, it's like we're benefiting from God that we were benefiting from the guy who collects the trash. It's not a relationship. But if God is invested in the dynamic of being a king and we're invested in the dynamic of being his subjects, then there's some kind of personal connection, even though it is, again, not, an in, not that kind of intimacy and closeness that we think of in other relationships. What the sense of obligation? It's a sense of, of obligation that goes to the core of your being. And I keep emphasizing this because this is kind of critical. Such a deep sense of obligation that it's more you than your own survival. That's, very, that's a very deep personal connection. And so the question on Rosh Hashanah is, is God our king? Are we his subjects? In other words, are we and is he invested in this modality of relationship or is this just a technicality? It could be he's above, we're below, he provides, we depend, but it's not very deep. He's not invested in it. We're not that invested in it. And it's, or is it no? He is deeply invested in being our king. We're deeply invested in being his subjects. Now, I want to present a, 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 an important consequence of this whole thing. There's something in Judaism called a mitzvah. You've heard of a mitzvah before? What is a mitzvah? A commandment. What is a mitzvah? You're right, it's a commandment. So what's a commandment? Something you're supposed to do. Why are you supposed to do it? Okay, so there's two ideas here. It's our connection with God, but that's actually not why you're supposed to do it. You'll see what I'm saying in a second. Someone said you're supposed to do it because God said so. Who cares if God said so? Isn't it all about gratefulness? No. Are we grateful to him that he's our God, so therefore we keep his senses that we love him? No. It's nice, but it's not true. It, it, it's one of those things that you can add in afterwards, but that's not actually... Perfect. We're his people. We keep his that all oh, we're his people. In other words, the idea of a command. Why do you have to keep a commandment? Is because he said. Well, who is the he who said? Hashem, our, God, our, king. our God, our King. In other words, a commandment is the consequence of him being our King. If I tell you to do something, you're perfectly entitled to ask, "Why should I listen to you?" Right. And I can give you reasons. I'm knowledgeable. I could hurt you if you don't. I'll reward you if you do. I can give you a lot of reasons why you should listen to me, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Everybody in life that isn't you, if they tell you to do something, you want, why should I listen to you? You want a reason. Whether you actually ask for it, whether you provide it on your own, but that's the case. Okay? If you had this sense that you were invested in beings and that you were the subject of someone and that person was your king, would you then feel that they needed a justification to expect that you listen to them? Would you feel that way or not? No. This goes back to the thing that we do, right? This whole, our culture is not like, what the notion of individualism that I'm entitled to live my life as I want goes hand in hand with getting rid of a king. Because the, the, way, the way our sages put it is the king is like the heart of the people. Every limb, right, depends on the heart. Every limb's life depends on the heart, right? It doesn't make any sense for my hand to say, well, why should I listen to you, Rabbi Kaufman? It's like, well, because your lifeblood is my lifeblood. That's why. Like, like, you're not your own person. 
your, your, your mind. If you feel like I, I, if you feel like, like this is my king, then it's not, you don't then in addition need, well, why should I listen to you? And this is not true. Even when you talk about something deep like a spouse or a parent, there's still the sense that like, just because my father said I should do it doesn't necessarily mean I should listen to it. Even with the mitzvah of honoring your parents, by the way. The, 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 the sense that we're that deeply devoted to each other means that the, 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 the center of, of will, the center of, of, of what life is about is flowing from the king to the subjects, the way the kind of the lifeblood flows from the heart to the limbs of the body. And when that's what the kind of sense you have, well, if, if my king wants this, then this is, must be what, I, what my life is about. This must be what I need. This must be what, 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 what it's all for. That's, so the sense of obligation comes because this is my king, not because he's wise, not because he's smart, not because I love him, not because I want something from him. And that's actually what our sages say, is God says, before I give you commandments, you have to accept that I'm your king. That you, if God is not king, then there's no such thing as mitzvahs. But in the model of a king, the, the subjects are only loyal because they are getting something in return. If a king is failing and providing for his people, they have no reason to. Well, then it's only a limited notion of kingship. So I mean, what's that? Was don't that have any real model of right? I, right. No. No. Well. So. So the thing is like this: most relationships have. Remember, I said like when you take relationships and you apply them to God, you have to strip away the things that are obviously not applicable. So most relationships um, that people engage in are limited. And I don't just mean the sense of not God, like they're limited even in the human terms. And what I mean to say is that we corrupt our relationship, not just with selfishness, but also with a notion of um, exchanging tit for tat, you know, business. And that's actually destructive to almost all relationships. So I'll just give you an example. In marriage, um, you know, there's things that one spouse owes the other spouse in marriage. Okay, the Jewish law outlines different things, and there's also psychological things, or whatever. Okay. So now, if a person's attitude towards their marriage is going to be, I will do what you know, is incumbent upon me as a husband or as a wife, so long as they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Long term, how's the quality of that marriage going to work? Not well. But if they're going to do it, I'm going to do it the best that I'm really independent of what the other person's going to do. That works very well. And that's when we, we... So now, which of those two models of relationship should ever be the model we understand when we're applying something to God? Right? There's, there's, the, there's, 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 there's the one model is I will only do on condition you do for me. Or the other is I will do... I will meet my end of the relationship independent of you meeting your end of the relationship. And that actually makes a relationship actually a relationship, not just a business transaction. And so even in like historical terms, if you were to talk about people who had a real sense this is my king, even if the king... Would, would reject them, they stayed loyal to the king. You've funny, you know, this stories about these types of things, it makes them literature, right? The, the person who the king has banished and the king has sentenced to death and they will still not speak against the king because this is my king. So that a relationship, a real relationship has this element that yes, both sides have the role to play, but they don't do it in a conditional manner. Once it becomes, I only do, assuming that you're also doing, we've turned it into business which we do a lot of times in our relationships. Ah, you know, it's like, how do you know who your real friends are? 
when you can't be there for them and they're still your friends, then you know those are your real friends. The people are your friends when you can be there for them, those are people that gain a lot from you. Right? They're, they're invested in you, they're invested in them. It's important to keep that, that that's, that's true between people and then you have to extract that and talk about God. So going back to mitzvahs, why is a mitzvah our connection to Hashem? Because it's actually a little bit weird. It is not the case that if I ask you to do something and you do it, that creates a connection. Like, I know rabbis say that all the time in classes, but think about it for a moment, okay? We'll use, like, the, 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 this is a kind of a cliche analogy. You know, the wife really wants flowers, and she asks the husband to get flowers, and the husband doesn't really care about the flowers, but he doesn't support his wife, so he gets the flowers anyway, and that creates a connection. Now, that's not true. Would you like to be on the receiving end of that, that your husband gets flowers just because you asked? Yeah, serious, would you, right? Why, why, using the flower manager, why would somebody want to get flowers from their husband? I mean, it does depend on the relationship. It does depend on the relationship, so give me some possibilities. It's an expression of the An expression of something that they're right. My husband was thinking about me even when I didn't ask, right? My husband is sensitive to what I like, right? My husband feels bad that I'm going through a difficult time and wants to let them know that he, he empathizes, whatever, right? But the compliance with the instruction to get the flowers is not what creates the bonding there, right? Make sense? It does. What? It does. It has, an, it has a reverse thing, which is if, 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 if you disregard someone's request, that can be destructive. So it has a maintenance kind of thing, but it doesn't create connection. And this is, this is it's really important to realize that. In rela- relationships don't actually get stronger because I ask you to do something and then you do it, or you ask me to do something and I did it. It is true that disregarding someone else's requests is, is harmful to a relationship, which is why if I can't comply with someone's request and I want a relationship, I have to figure out how to do that in a way that's sensitive. On average, if, you, if you're a person who, who goes to work you know, and have a boss, do you spend more time following your boss's instructions or your spouse's instructions? Boss. Does, so by the logic that following someone's instructions creates a bond, you should have a stronger bond with your boss. Is that what actually happens in life? That the, right? <laughs> right? Right, but so, so the, the simple fact that you're obeying the instruction in and of itself doesn't do that. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you one place, in, one place in, in life where obeying the instruction actually does, does, does strengthen the dynamic, the relationship. Um, most militaries have this thing called boot camp. Has anyone ever been to boot camp? You've been to boot camp? Well, I was in the army. So. Okay, so. So they didn't boot camp, right? So, um, and I have not been in the military, so I'm only speaking secondhand, okay? But this is what I have been told by other people who have been in the military. Um, that there's many things that boot camp is for, but one of the things that boot camp is for is um, to get you used to the fact that somebody else's instructions matter more than the mood that you're in. And that's just the way the world works. It's a different headspace to live in. Right? 
Now, most of us, we live in my Someone wants to do something, should I do it? I don't know, right? To get to the point that, that this is the instruction, you go and do it, and that's like, you're there. It, it flows. What kind of relationships develop between the person following the instruction and the person giving the instruction in that, since you have boot camp Like, if you have somebody whose, their instruction matters, carries more weight than whatever mood you're in, you're tired, you still have to get up. So do things. So what, what, what do you start to feel towards that person? Well, it depends on the person, but like I personally, because I was aware of things I had to do, like you definitely know that they have all the authority over you, but it didn't, I didn't lose any respect for them, even though like I didn't want to do what they wanted. But I think some other people so you. Okay, no, but this is, this is I, I'm sure because we're complex, but, but this is, so what you're saying is you have a sense of their place relative to your place. Like you're, you're nothing to them, but. But not a total nothing because whether you listen to the instruction really doesn't matter. Like not, like a, not like a nothing in, in that sense because if it's really nothing, then you don't have to follow the instruction. That's true. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. right? The other thing that people told me from boot camp is the sense that what you do really makes a difference and you're capable of doing stuff even when you think you're not, which is like the opposite end of that. So what do you see an interesting correlation here, right? That in that example where it's about relative station and hierarchy, the giving and obeying the instruction actually does manifest and strengthen the relationship. When it's about love, when it's about um, um, feelings of intimacy and closeness and compassion and empathy, that necessarily is inst- instruction and obedience is not, it doesn't define relationship, doesn't strengthen relationship, doesn't express the relationship. But in these kinds of things where it's about having a sense that they're up here, I'm down here, but and I don't resent them for it. And the fact I see that that's something that I have put respect for, in that sense, the idea of command and obeying a command actually is a revelation, a manifestation, and a strengthening of that dynamic. So, now, there has to be a basic acceptance that the person is, I don't know what you would call them in the army, the instructor, the, the, commander. the, command, the commander, before like that whole thing can get off the ground, right? So now, is that the exact same as a king? A king is in a much deeper sense, but that dynamic exists. And so, the thing is like this, if God isn't king, he could still be very wise, but then we're listening to him because he has good advice. Right? Or without God being our king, we could say we're, you know, we'll, he, 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 he loves us. And so we're doing, things, um, we're doing things to show our gratitude for the love that he's given us. But none of those actually are a commandment. And it's very interesting. The Torah uses the word mitzvah. It doesn't use the word, it doesn't use other words. As the idea is that if a mitzvah is a connection, it's because a mitzvah is manifesting and strengthening our sense that he is up there, we are down here. And not despite that, but because of that, we are deeply dedicated to each other, but in an asymmetrical way. Him as the commander and us as the subject. And so the whole idea that Judaism exists depends on whether God embraces being king. If God doesn't embrace being king, then, then whether you do a mitzvah or doesn't do a mitzvah is meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. And that also means that the meaning in every mitzvah 
at its core is that we are embracing that we are devoted to each other, God to us and us to God, knowing full well that God and us are not in any way equivalent to each other, that we're not equals, we're not compatriots, we're not holding on the same level. And yet I, and not yet, but it's because of that, I am totally devoted to him and he brings himself to care enough to instruct and be invested in whether or not I comply with those instructions. And so it's about creating a very different relationship. And it's, it, the reason why I'm specifically teaching it this way is I want you to realize that it is, it's a difficult thing to come to terms with talk about crowning Shem kings because, because it forces us to face the fact that God is not just a projection of whatever we want in the ideal human being. If all I want God to be is the ideal human being, I want God to be someone who I can love, who loves me. I want God to be someone who is more. We take what we value in human beings and then God becomes the, the super-sized version of that in the sky. And that's what we worship. It's almost idolatrous in a certain sense. And the idea that God chooses whether to be king, he doesn't have to be king, he doesn't have to invest himself in that, makes us kind of have to come to terms with the fact that Judaism and, and everything it means is a choice on God's part. It's a choice on our part. And um, we have to kind of folk, we have to, we have to, we have to grapple with that. Right? So in that sense, crowning Hashem king is by definition uncomfortable. Because crowning Hashem king means you're, you're, you're facing the fact that it's not a given that he has that kind of thing, that he's invested in this dynamic. It's not a given that just because I do a mitzvah, that matters to him. It's not a given that my devotion means anything to him. He has to freely choose to be invested in that. And if, it, if having a relationship with God is important to me, it's not something that can be taken for granted because he has to be a willing participant and it's not a given that he is a willing participant. With a human being, on some level you can manipulate a human being. On some level you have drives and desires and needs that if I can tap into, I can make you want to be connected to me in some way, shape, or form. We, that's how, we often do that with each other. Sometimes we do it in ways that we think is wrong. And sometimes we do it in ways that we think is right. Like, what's the difference between, say, brainwashing and educating? Right? Or what's the, dif what's the, difference, what's the difference between being coercive right, and you know, charming somebody. You know, when you're dating, you're, you, you try to be charming. You want to get the person to be interested in you. We think of that as a positive thing. But when does that law cross the line into being made up of a coercive? These are complicated things. With God, this thing doesn't exist. You can't, you can't manipulate God. God doesn't start out with a, he and us, we're operating in the same space. And, and so he's really into our mitzvahs. Like some people don't feel like, you know, if I do enough mitzvahs, I can hold that against God. Look, I did all your mitzvahs. Now you have to do stuff for me. As if God... God caring about our mitzvahs is the result of him invested in being king, and that's a choice he makes. He makes a choice to engage in that dynamic that he is the God and we are the creations. He is, he is the king and we're the subjects, and to value that. He doesn't, he can, he doesn't have to be invested in that. But and he is. Uh, how do you know? So, uh, one second. So, Kabbalah teaches that he stops being invested when the sun goes down on Rosh Hashanah. That you are right, he currently is invested. And it is now the 11th of Elul, so he will be invested um, for another 18 days. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Then? Have you he ever been. Being invested. That's right. Have you it's ever. Not like, it's not like we're not his people now. 
Like, then why would he even judge us if he's not going to be invested? I didn't say we're going to talk about judging, right? Okay, but I'm saying, like, we know that during that period from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, like, there is a big emphasis on how he views us. But that's after Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so what do you We're talking about it. So the way this works... Why would he want to eat his people if he's not invested? Well, one second, one second, one second. One thing at a time. He's not invested... And the, the general idea is that he's not invested until um, we go through the service of God of Rosh Hashanah, specifically the sounding of the shofar. But the entire prayer service and everything about is about really about crowding Hashem King. And the crowding Hashem King means that to um, ask him to, yes, be invested in this. So that's on us to ask him to be invested? Yes, it is on us. Which means, which means, there's a lot of uncomfortable vulnerability going on on Rosh Hashanah. Number one, you have to face the fact that it's not a given he's invested. And therefore, you don't have that really ability to manipulate him. Number two, you have to realize that on some level, it's important to you that he's invested. And then you have to ask without having the ability to coerce him into it. Have you ever had in a situation where somebody had something that's very important to you? And it was up to them where they give it to you. And you had no ability to make them give it to you. You just have to ask and hope that they agree. Yep. Does that feel very good? Nope. No, you have to really face your own vulnerability. Okay, that's Rosh Hashanah. But we'll only be either way, like each one reaching them or not. Because right now you say that it's going to be for everyone. I mean, what do you say that? Um... We did go through Rosh Hashanah last year. <laughs> right, but not everybody necessarily crowned Hashem as king. Um, I think does Rosh Hashanah do it for itself, or is there a need for us to be involved in that process? There's a need for you to be involved in that process. So what do you say to people that aren't involved in that process, and then I'll still come around again? So, I can give you the true answer. Um. <laughs> And I, or I can give you an answer that you're going to like. But I'm only going to give you one. So decide which one you want. True. Yeah, the true answer. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, no. You don't get the, you, you get to, sometimes like, you have to make choices. Okay. I think we should vote. <laughs> you want the true answer? Yes. Yeah. Okay. There are ways in which God is not like a person. People have an inability to do things without having a system. Okay, think about that in life. As what you're doing becomes more involved, you need a system in order to be effective, to get it done, right? And if you think about what a system means, it means putting one thing at the expense of another for the sake of the overall project, right? So I'm going to do this as opposed to doing that and then move on to the other thing, right? That's how systems work, right? So I have seven children, right? I care and love each one, but I can't actually parent all of them without some kind of a system. There's, you know, taking care of their physical needs, there's being with them emotionally, right? There's spending one-on-one time, there's spending time together, there's having, right? And, and so like there's a need to put one thing at the expense of the other and create a system in order for those things to work. Because this is how human beings function, we are naturally, um, motivated, try and figure out God's system. But God does not need a system. God doesn't have a system. Okay? So the true answer to this is, 
that whenever was, wait, was it, what? Like, right, sorry for interrupting, but like he also does. We were given a tire up. Let me let me finish. We are systematic. So every time that discusses these types of things, what this is doing is is talking about how the way God relates to us gets filters into our reality, which means as follows. The more that you are invested in what is going on, the more what we're learning about is an actual part of your life. So let's say you have a Jew who's completely not religious, okay? It is not like God is sitting around waiting for that person to like blow the shofar with all the knowledge of the person who's learned all this Hasidus, and if not, then God is not invested in them. Because it's not a system for God. But as the person starts to relate to God more and more and more, because a person needs a system for how things work, God relates to them in a systematic way. So it ends up being, and this is what's very important to understand, it ends up being that if we want to talk about the Jewish people as a whole, we can talk about Jewish people as a whole. If we want to talk about you individually, we can talk about you individually. But what we can't do is talk about the system of how, how it works for you versus how it works for me. It doesn't, there isn't a system. There isn't like a grand architecture, a heavenly bureaucracy, and like, the role you play, the role I play. There's how God relates to the Jewish people as a whole. There's how God relates to each individual Jew, and that's it. And so the system is only the system of as on my end of it. So what we're describing is, you know, as we're trying to grow and relate to Rosh Hashanah, what does, what does Rosh Hashanah about that force us to find and how Hashanah can relate to us? But the person who's completely ignorant of Rosh Hashanah because whatever divine reasons the person wasn't raised or wasn't exposed, how does God relate to that person on Rosh Hashanah is relates to their level of where they're at. And, and there is no systematic way to speak about where they are relative to where I am and how those two things work together. And that's very uncomfortable because we, we want to figure out that system. We want to figure out how it all works. And there isn't a how it all works. There is how to, is what, how does, how does the, the, the place where I as an individual or, or I as part of a collective work at this moment, at this stage, and so we're discussing those kind of general themes. It's, it's not like, and, 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 that, and, and that's what it means that there's, that, that's what it means that Hashem gives us the Torah. It's not that now, okay, nobody blew the chauffeur, so God won't be king. That's like a silly thing to say. Why is it a silly thing to say? Do you really think that there's no Jews that are going to blow chauffeur? Do you really think that, do you really think that, like, it, it, it It's like, if you have a friend, yeah, and you have another friend, and you have a third friend, do you like take your, I mean, maybe you do, I hope you don't, do you take your three friends and you say like this, okay, I've now created a system for how each friendship plays a different role, and how they work together, and when I should like, or do you like, this relationship is important to me, and this person has these dynamics, and I have my dynamics, and so the question is how to make this work, and there's how to make that work, and that's it. And you kind of hopefully navigate that effectively, right? And so it's like, someone asked you, what's your list of rules for how you manage these free friends and why you prioritize one of them? You're like, I don't have a list of rules, right? Or in a conversation, like, what is the rule for when you say this? And you don't, we don't think, we don't do things that way. But the more complicated thing is, we start to try to do it that way. Like I said, once you start having a lot of friends and you might start systematizing when I speak to this one, I speak to that one. And we run into the danger that we miss something. When it comes to God, there's no system. From God's end, God reveals himself in a way that we can work with so it has some systematic elements for us. So if you're asking, 
what does it mean that God withdraws his kingship from me? That's a meaningful question. What do you mean that God withdraws his kingship from the, the Jewish people as a whole? That's also a meaningful question. What does it mean that God withdraws his kingship from some other person? Is a meaningless question for you to ask. It's only a meaningful question for them to ask. And if they're not in a place to ask it, then it's obviously meaningless because that's the true answer. And it's an uncomfortable answer. But the answer that feels good, you'll have to wait for some other time. Okay? So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about more specifically Rosh Hashanah. What does it mean that, what does it mean that he withdraws being king? How do we sound in the show for crowning him king? We'll talk more about this. But I want you to, to realize that it's not like the idea of kingship should evoke within you all sorts of feelings, but the kingship is like, was used, is using, used as a model to understand there's this relationship of, it's a deep relationship, sense of degree of devotion. But unlike other relationships, which have this kind of positive intimacy or negative intimacy, it's this relationship of devoted to what is above you in the hierarchy or what is below you in the hierarchy. And God has to actually be invested in that relationship. And we have to invest in that relationship, otherwise it's not a real relationship. And Rosh Hashanah is the time to renew that. And I want to talk specifically what does it mean he withdraws, why did he bring it back, why would he do that? Okay, all those things we're going to talk about.